This podcast was produced on Ghana Yurta. We respect First Nations people around Australia and acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, where the Festival Centre is located. We honour their spiritual relationship with their country and we do so in the spirit of reconciliation. Musical theatre, it's such a collaborative art form that you've made this world with a whole bunch of other creative people. It works. It's a place that people bring themselves to and imagine themselves into. And I like to make art that people can come inside and it has a real emotional impact uh, Mm. on them and takes them on a journey in creating a world that there's so much joy in knowing that you can create a world and then night after night people can experience all the highs and lows and surprises and thrills of that. Hey, Libby O'Donovan here. Welcome to the First 50 Podcast, a 50th anniversary celebration of the Adelaide Festival Centre, the home of performing arts in South Australia. This magical venue, which I've had the delight of performing in over the last 25 years, has housed some historical moments and many of my fellow incredible artists. Today's episode is for the creators, the makers, the writers, the dreamers, the doers, the people who can go from big ideas to vivid details in a heartbeat. But it's also for everyone who knows fundamentally that making things can be hard. You can spend hours staring at a blank piece of paper, debate yourself into knots over the smallest elements, or tear your hair out wondering if you've gone too far or maybe not far enough. Working in this industry means riding the hair-raising roller coaster of passion and doubt that comes with a great idea. Scores of these creative thrill-seekers have passed through the halls of the Adelaide Festival Centre, and I've talked to so many already on this podcast. They chase their ideas and passions all the way to the stages and spotlights we know so well. And today's guest is no exception. They've been performing at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival since 2003 and have returned to Adelaide many times since as a writer, director, actor, singer-songwriter, comedian and performer. But it doesn't stop there. I'm proud to be joined in the depths of the Dunstan Playhouse by relentless creator and industry stalwart, Eddie Perfect. Dear listener, you are about to receive a masterclass in pulling at a creative thread until it becomes the toe-tapping, show-stopping, breathtaking production of your dreams. Prepare your ears for the incredibly funny, prolific and earnest genius of Eddie Perfect. Well, I want to start, Eddie, you, you came in here this morning. We're in the Dunstan Playhouse, in the best bit of the Playhouse, the dressing room. Dressing rooms is where it all goes down. That's where it all goes down. How? Tell me about what it feels like to be in this building. And Well, I like my relationship with the Festival Centre in Adelaide because I'm from Melbourne and, you know, when I was a kid uh, I got taken out to see theatre in Melbourne and so there are a lot of theatrical buildings in Melbourne, some of which exist, some of which don't exist anymore, that I have that kind of childhood feeling of walking into, especially like the art centre in Melbourne with its plush red carpets and its brass fixtures and everything. So I have a kind of a real strong sense memory of cutting my teeth on theatre in Melbourne. But when I first came to this place, it was as a musical director for a cabaret that had been programmed by Julia Holt for the Adelaide Cabaret Festival, I think maybe in like 2000 and 
2003, 2002, early, like early on after just graduating from drama school basically. So I'd never been here. I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't really know Adelaide that well either, to be honest. And over the years, I keep coming back and I get to see a little bit more of it. And I feel like, you know, you have to kind of do your duty and your service, your hours of service to this place. And then you, they show you another room or another yeah. little hallway that connects to another thing. I've been in the banquet room warming up in front of refrigerators and like stretching between canapes and... Then there's also like all of the production rooms, which I got to see once I became the artistic director. And I think I've played pretty much every piano. I've rehearsed in every rehearsal space. And and now I've performed on every stage from the beginning at the art space, up those stairs at the art space, all the way through to the festival stage itself. So over the years, I've developed this kind of nice relationship with this place where I come back and I'm like, oh yeah, he's this old friend. Yeah. And each room here feels like it it serves a different purpose for the performance. Well, it's really interesting. Like all things that, you know, the theatre is kind of made up of two opposite sort of shadow selves. There's the magic and the clamour and the... that happens on stage where, you know, there's performance and there's music and there's lights and there's an alchemy between you and the audience. But then we have this huge backstage place where we, as performers, spend a lot of time and a lot of nervous time, you know, worrying about what's going to happen out there. And so there's an intensity about our memories in this place because whether we're performing, you know, with a band or whether we're performing on our own or whether we're on a bill with lots of other performers, we're sharing spaces like the one that we're in right now where, you know, we're talking, where we're rehearsing, where we're running lines, where we're psyching ourselves up. There's a lot at stake. It's always high stakes. So it's yeah. sort of an intense experience. And... So the places that I'm kind of fondest of in this building aren't the kind of fancy pants places necessarily. Like, I probably have the strongest connection to the green room just next door, which has an old upright piano in it and a kitchenette with an urn and, you know, freeze-dried coffee because that's the kind of communal meeting place where you grab people you're about to perform with. You run harmonies, you run arrangements, you run charts, you run dialogue. You know, you're furiously at the last minute trying to polish something. So I, my favourite memories are just sharing space and time with performers in these kind of mutual nooks and crannies. And how do you feel just before you go on? Is it a sense of, all right, we're in this together, we're going to do this? Like what, what's that feeling you get just before you go on in front of all of the people after the green room rehearsal? You know, like nerves are mitigated by preparation. So the more preparation you do, then when it comes to performing, and I always have this same sort of non-denominational prayer that I say to myself, which is a combination of like, trust the work, trust the material, take your time, be clear. Clarity is like the most, I think probably is about 90% of performance for me is like, be clear with the ideas, breathe, enjoy it, be free. And we're all gonna, you, me, everyone in the audience, we're all gonna die. <laughs> like that's true. That's right. So there is a limit to how much things really matter. Sometimes it helps for me to think about animals or human beings in other parts of the world who just could not give less of a shit about what I'm about to do Yeah. if they try. They're not aware of it. It doesn't matter. The world rolls on. And I find that quite a freeing thought. It's like jumping out of a plane, which I've only ever done once. I was strapped to another, another dude. <laughs> There's an image. But it is that sort of sense of if anyone's ever like bungee jumped or jumped off a big 
cliff into some water or jumped off a pier. There's a sense of like once you leave the, the place where you're safe and yeah. you're sort of free falling, you just basically have to embrace the loss of control over that and just be totally free and enjoy it. And so that's kind of feeling for me. It's always like jumping off something into an unknown and I'm like, all right, here we go. I enjoy it. And you mentioned a non-denominational prayer. I'd love to take you back now to your mm-hmm. childhood and where you grew up. You went to a Catholic school. I did, St. Patrick's Primary School. And did you have a Catholic upbringing? Did that inform any part of who you are today? Or Yeah, it did. I like to say that I'm kind of like still Catholic without the magic. Yeah. And I think all religions at their core are about a governing principle that is an extension I guess the village or the tribe. When when humans become populous and living in areas where you know you don't have instant personal connection to each person, you know the dynamics of a tribe don't exist anymore. You need a governing principle, mm. and we all know that human beings are way more successful when we're working in collaboration with each other. And a religion is a way of codifying that, so that we bend towards kindness rather than selfishness, generosity, and collaboration rather than everybody just kind of defending their own little patch and. And, well, I've got mine so you can fuck off, you know. Religion is really, uh, especially Catholicism at its heart, is, is I think it's about social justice and education and I really admire those principles. Mm. And so as a result, I, I can't shake the things that I learnt, you know, by being a, being a Catholic. But, you know, I also have a healthy distrust of organizations and clubs and hierarchies and humans with power and people, you know, like with rules, you know, all that bullshit about who's in and who's out and exclusivity and all that sort of stuff. So I've had a fraught relationship with it, but it certainly was a big part of my life growing up. It's easy to see how connection, shared values and ideas feed into Eddie's story. I'm struck by the idea of community, togetherness and collaboration and can understand why Eddie has put his faith in the arts. But for every minute of connection shared with an audience on stage, there are thousands more that go into the making of a performance. And as many creatives know, not all of that process can be shared with others. I wonder if this rings true for Eddie. I love that idea of collaborative work and collaboration because once you're on the stage and you're there with bands and you're there with, you know, technicians and producers and the audience, it is a collaborative effort. But before that, I've heard you describe the creative process of getting to that as something that can be quite lonely. Mm. When you're writing, when you're starting to create something, it really is this moment of being on your own, by yourself, with your thoughts let's go. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, I embrace the lonely aspect of it. I think I've gotten better at it over time. Too much isolation does make a person go a little odd. So (laughs) I I used to think about writing as like going in the hole. A big part of my process was like being up all hours of the night and drinking heaps of booze and, you know, like just living in a slightly odd, non-sustainable way and being sort of like depressed and and dragging things up from the depths. And that was my way of trying to get to something, you know, original and unique and smashing through things like 
habit and patterns that that all writers and performers have to work through because we're in order to get to something you know fresh I think you know you have to work through a whole lot of patterns of behavior mm. so you know that used to be my shortcut now I've replaced that with something that's probably approaching discipline you know I just put time yeah. in now and my focus is a little better although it wavers and it is weird it's like you make yourself lonely in order to write back to people and people are yeah. always part of the process I mean even though they're imaginary in the writing part because I sit in my studio at the back of my house and the first thing I think about when I write a song for a character is what's come before, what's going to happen next, what are the audience thinking and feeling, where are they at, sort of what kind of temperature are they at and how do I want them to feel? Mm. You know, how do I want this song and this character to make them feel? What, are, what information do I want them to learn? Where do I want to start? How do I want to be different by the time... I finish. So audiences are always factored in there. I like to make art that people can come inside and it has a real emotional impact uh, mm. on them and takes them on a, a journey in creating a world that there's so much joy in knowing that you can create a world and then night after night people can enter into that world and experience all the highs and lows and surprises and thrills of that world and I don't even need to be there anymore, you know. And and knowing that in the case of musical theatre, it's such a collaborative art form that you've made this world with a whole bunch of other creative people and it's yeah. a result of a, a collaboration and then it sort of works. It's a place that people bring themselves to and imagine themselves into and, yeah, I really love that. Audiences are important to me. Yeah, and I guess with your experience in cabaret, that is even more right at the forefront because cabaret is different every night. Something can happen. Audiences quite often involve themselves in a show during a cabaret performance as opposed to music theatre where yeah. it does need to be the same each night. That's right. What do you prefer? Well, I think everything that I put into writing musical theatre has been completely informed by performing comedy in cabaret mm. because there's an immediacy about that art form where we've all seen avant-garde cabaret, whatever that means, you know, where something is inscrutable or unintelligible or, you know, sort of weird or mm -hmm. monotonous and unbelievably long. But it takes a kind of a moxie to stand in front of an audience and torture them like that. Most artists, I think, you know, they, you come out of a cabaret career and you would have this. After a show, you develop a really acute sense for what's working and what's not, for what's real applause, what's real goodwill, what's kind of like forced goodwill or what's like obligatory goodwill from an audience, you know, we're here and yeah. we've left the house and we've paid the babysitter and we've parked the car and we're going to, you know, exhibit a, a level of enjoyment for us. But you can tell when you haven't got them to a place where they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And I think as a cabaret artist, you're always sort of striving to find that. So when you're doing a show or performing the same material over and over, you're really mining it for the best kind of effect. It's like you're creating an ideological musical roller coaster that an audience goes on and you're like, I went too quickly around that bend or I, I lost clarity on this moment. You're always sort of refining it down constantly. And, and those lessons are so great for writing for a musical because even though you're not the one on stage communicating that song, with Beetlejuice on Broadway, I stood at the back of the Winter Garden Theatre and I mostly watched the audience. It was kind of creepy but I mostly was like, where, what are they laughing at? At the opening of the second act of Beetlejuice, 
we kind of start in a slightly weird way instead of going back to this haunted house we start on the street with a girl scout and i wanted this idea of a you know a, a girl scout selling cookies door to door who you know is the last person on earth who should go to this particular house this yeah. haunted house and the curtain goes up act two. there's an entourage in the in the darkness with some projections and then and the audience are like, you know, that, that jump scare where audiences are like scrambling for their seats and then the curtain goes up and people are just getting their bums down and with no context at all, this tiny little Girl Scout walks out on stage and starts singing about selling cookies. And the first four or five previews of that, it's like the audience could never get on board with what was going on. Yeah. And she eventually rings the doorbell and one of our main characters, our protagonist, answers the door and people are like, oh, I know her and then we were sort of okay. And I was like, I just think they need another four bars of music before she opens her gob. And we were like, let's try it. So we put in four more bars of music and it's just enough time to go for an audience to look at the stage and go, huh, where are we? Who is that? What's happening? Oh, I get it. And then she started singing. Yeah. Now that is like they understood from then on in and that was literally like just a couple of extra bars of music. And that sort of stuff is really interesting to me because, you know, you are designing something for a human brain to respond in real time. Mm. And you have to, if it's not working, you you have to really go, why? What What is it they're not getting? And I feel like all of my time in, in cabaret was mostly about, like I said before, clarity. Like, mm. is an audience following the argument of this song? The hook is about a certain idea. Are they with me every step of the way? Is it funny and engaging? If it's not, cut it because then you're standing on stage having to deal with an audience who are like, you know what I mean? So I would say that I prefer musicals now because I like the world, the whole, you know, there's, a, there's an ambition to it. It's yeah. like a, I feel like I can be funnier as a writer when I'm writing for other characters and I feel like if I have a scenario that a character is in, it affords way more opportunities for song moments than me writing solo cabaret, which is like, this is another song for me. This is another song for Eddie. And what does Eddie think about this? And I'm just so bored with what Eddie thinks about that. It's so small, you know, mm. whereas I like to go, what does this old man think about it? What does this young girl think about it? What does this squid or this possum or, you know, it's, it's way more imaginative in its scope. So I am thankful for the cabaret years and that it was like my university degree. Yeah. And now I just use it all for musical theatre. Where others may see limits in the scripts and storylines of musical theatre, Eddie sees opportunity, and his craft flourishes as a result. After receiving his education on Australia's cabaret circuit, Eddie moved to New York in 2015 to pursue his Broadway ambitions. Here, he followed the quintessential New York narrative and slaved away at his keyboard for years until 2018, when King Kong the Musical opened, followed closely by Beetlejuice in 2019. I'm interested to know more about his approach to writing for musical theatre. How does he build connection between an audience and the mystical, supernatural or downright outlandish worlds they see on stage? Where does he even begin? And where does he draw the line? So when you're writing for music theatre, do you think this can be taken out of the musical 
and popped into a standalone song or are you always writing specifically for that musical and if it happens to be able to be pulled out? It's a little bit of a hybrid where if I was the kind of selfless composer, lyricist who conceived of a score as being like totally integrated with the script of the mm. book of the music and songs came out of book and they, you know, they start somewhere in the middle and they end somewhere before the end and there's no buttons on things and we're just kind of going from scene to song in and out. That'd be one thing, but whether it's through ego or a personal taste, the subverting the, the concept of a song with a beginning and a middle and an end really pains me. It really pains me. To the extent that, you know, if I'm doing a musical, sometimes obviously you're always looking to cut down songs and I always have to be the one that cuts things down. I hate other people cutting down my songs because they can make really unmusical cuts. That, yeah. You know, there's a subconscious kind of thing going on with a song that's just not just about the dramaturgy of the words. Like, oh, well, we can cut this and it still makes sense lyrically, but yeah, but it doesn't make – music has a, mm. a logic and a sequence about it as well. The way we – hear the words and the way the music wraps around them and creates an emotional base is really important too. So I always write specifically for a character and I don't worry about the context of it. But the fact that they are, by definition, sort of full songs mm. means that they can be performed out of context by a character. And also because of how I arrived at writing musicals, I have a theory that musicals succeed because the people that buy tickets for them can dream themselves into them. And it's a lot easier to put yourself inside a musical because that's what I did from the first time I heard a musical. Mm. I just fully entered into that world. I think it were two cassette tapes in the combi. There was Sweeney Todd with George Hearn and Angela Lansbury. I think that was the LA Metropolitan Opera 1984 production. And then there was Pirates of Penzance, Kevin Klein. <laughs> which is, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan, obviously. And I feel like that the combination of Sweeney Todd and Gilbert and Sullivan is sort of still informs my writing style to this day, you know. Storytelling, words, drama, wordplay, all those sorts of things. Comedy, dark comedy. Yeah. All those things are sort of still embedded in my style. But from the first time I heard those musicals, I heard them like I was in them. Mm. There was like a 3D imagination going on, like where I'd be like, when a character was singing, I was, you know, what's that amazing song that Frederick sings? Oh, is there not one maiden breast? You know yeah. that song? Yeah. You know, you're there, you're inside it. And I know that when, you know, like I wrote Beetlejuice, people that are really obsessed with the score are people who they see themselves as Lydia or they mm. see themselves as Delia. And when the, when the song plays, they enter into that. And that's why the show took off on TikTok because TikTok was a way of broadcasting people being inside those characters. They got dressed up in cosplay, they mimed to those songs, they acted them, and there was something about the music that made them want to enter into that world. I guess because I totally identify with that mm. feeling of being inside a musical, that's the way I write when I, I write. I'm like, I want people to be able to be inside this show in their bedroom, you know. And do you write always... On the piano? Yeah, sometimes I start on the piano and I move to guitar and sometimes I start on the guitar and move to the piano. It depends on the show. Sometimes I just start in my studio and I create the demo and the track with, you know, drums and bass and horns and whatever else. I do it all in real time. It just sort of kind of comes together that yeah. way. But I'm writing a piece at the moment that is sort of set in the mid-50s and it's a lot of kind of jazz and swing and dance music and... 
there's sort of a weird process for that. A lot of that happens when I'm walking the dog and I walk the dog and I just start to hear, you know, a groove or a rhythm or like a or a lick or a horn part and, yeah. or, or, you know, a little sequence or something and then I get my phone out and I'm walking along in the dark singing into my voice recorder and then I'll take that home to the piano and try and work out how, how it works and then I'll, you know, work out how it works in piano and then I'll go and record it. So it depends on the style of music. I find with multiple characters, once you get a kind of a, a pass down on, like I work in Logic, for example, once I've got a pass down, then I can stop being a writer and I start being like a performer and I sing the song and I sing the demo in character and sometimes there are moments of improvisation that come out of that that are really interesting, exciting and lead to other things that just blurt out in the moment. So it's a, it's actually fun. I really enjoy the process of writing because, you know, I get to be composer, I get to be lyricist, I get to kind of create this stage musical in my mind, I get to be all the characters and perform all mm. the characters. It's Sometimes I stop and I and I'm like, if anyone, if there was a hidden camera in this room, it would be, it would be so embarrassing because it is really quite a peculiar thing. But I I love it and it's just me by myself all day, every day. I've heard a few interviews with you about your writing and your process, and a couple of times you've said that you've written from a really Australian perspective, obviously from your own experience as someone who has grown up here and lived here, and there's the particular kind of humour that goes along with being Australian, how's that translated when you've been to New York and written for obviously Broadway productions and saying, hey, this is my particular style and sense of humour? How's that translated? Well, that's really interesting because what's specific about comedy, I think, especially black comedy, which I kind of bend towards, is that it requires you knowing where the line in the sand is and walking as close to it or nudging it as much as you can. And, of course, you know, being Australian and growing up in Australia and having worked in Australia as a comedian a lot, I feel like I've worked out where the line is. Now, of course, everybody's line is different, so you're mm. always crossing other people's lines and that's fine, but you're trying to get a sense of the general, the median line where I think I'm talking about the, the separation between, you know, good taste and bad taste, you know, you always sort of playing around that area yeah. and then as soon as you go out of the country it's that line is somewhere else and I'm mm. less likely to know exactly where it is now sometimes that was a bit of an advantage because I, I balled into New York just stepping way over many <laughs> many lines but you can always come back but it's really hard to go forward mm. if you create something that isn't challenging you can't push it further. Yes. You have to go all the way and then go, oh, everyone has to freak out. And then we go, okay, we're, well, let's bring it back until, you know, we're satisfied where it's sitting. So, for example, I wrote a song, which is probably the only, like, satirical song, and it's the most sort of solo, Eddie Perfect type song, you know, from my kind of cabaret days that I that I wrote for the score of Beetlejuice, and that was a song called Creepy Old Guy, which is dealing with the fact that, Lydia in the movie is sort of forced into marrying Beetlejuice and mm. she's a young woman and he's a really old man and for some reason in the in the 80s you know no one really worried about that too much but now it just didn't feel good but it's a fundamental part of the the mm. movie in order to come alive he needs to marry somebody and he forces Lydia to marry him so I was like well why don't we just lean all the way into this idea and so in the musical, Lydia is trying to convince Beetlejuice that she really wants to marry him. She sings a song about how much she loves creepy old guys. And 
it, we just lent all the way into that idea and the producers were pretty stressed out about it. Yeah. And actually in the beginning when we performed it in previews, the audiences were pretty stressed out about it. There was a lot of like people were looking around going, is this happening? Are they saying this? Are they allowed to say this? What's going on? What's And after a while the show became a kind of a known entity and people started to arrive at the show having – you know, the majority of people had either heard the material mm. or at least knew that the show knew what was what it was doing. It, it wasn't accidentally sexist. It was making a satirical point. So people could enjoy it. But in the beginning, it was really touch and go. And then in every pr- production that we've done that's non-English speaking, like so we've done a South Korean production now, it's about to open in Japan there's a translation process, but producers, I think, sneakily use the translation process to editorialize and no one wants creepy old guy in the show. They want to change the lyric to like, oh, it'll translate to like guy from the other side or, right. you know, you know, man that I love or whatever. And I'm like, no, it's like, yeah. it's like a creepy old, you know, those guys that stand around the wolf whistle women on the street. And culturally, there's a lot of like, oh, we don't have that here. And I'm like. There's one thing I know about men and creepy old men is that they're all over the planet. You know what I mean? So that's been kind of a fascinating part of the process, try and work that out. You know, how dark can you go? Where's the line? Yes. I think there's that self-deprecating humour in Australia that's been around forever that it feels as though it's starting to branch out now, but we're so used to it. We just cross that line a lot. Yeah. Although one thing I have found is that satire is really problematic. Mm. everywhere and i mean basically it's like taking a whale out of the ocean and putting it in a theme park you know it never does well when you put it in a new context and Mm. i feel like satire i barely got to the point in australia where people would really understand the point that i was making or you know we were able to get past the the kind of the darkness or the surprise of it to understand the deeper satirical point but take that out of australia like to the uk or to the us and there's a reason why they, what do they say? It's a satire is the thing that closes on Saturday night, you know? Yes. It's very prone to misunderstanding. Mm. Yes. That's a fine line. Yeah. That's the line to look out whether you're crossing yeah, it or I, not. Yeah, I just ignore that. I just don't really play with that, play with satire that much anymore for that reason. It's sort of a heartbreaking genre. It's certainly not easy to break into Broadway, but Eddie has battered down the door with his eccentric style and wicked lyricism. His most successful project, Beetlejuice, proves this. With two stellar years on Broadway, a national US tour, several international iterations, including adaptions for South Korean and Brazilian audiences, and no less than eight Tony Award nominations, including nods for Best Musical and Best Original Score. It's been an absolute privilege to see what's behind the curtain of Eddie's creative process. But as every creator knows, it can be difficult to sit in retrospect for too long. Eddie's already turned his attention to what's next, and I'm itching to know what that is. Have you got work that you're working on at the moment? Have you got yeah. anything? You've got musicals? I'm writing three musicals. Oh, great. One for Australia and, and two for the United States. And they're all at sort of different, they're, they're at different stages. But it's amazing how the 
you would think that, well, I, I would have sort of hoped that after doing a Broadway show that the pathway to for a new musical to be developed would be a little clearer or, or a little, like, you know, more logical. Nothing is logical about anything. And I've just found people I really like to write with and thrown myself into writing. And one thing I try and do is keep producers and money out of the picture for as long as possible, just so I can really dream about a piece and get it to a point where it, it is what it is and then say, hey, this is this idea we've got. And then producers can come on board and go, okay, we really like this or we really hate this or or whatever. So one piece I've got is at the American musical where just, we just sit in meetings and we just talk about the story. We're just, every time we have a meeting, it's a Zoom meeting, we pick up where we left off and we're just sort of like, writing the story and then we'll go back and then we'll turn it into a musical and even that is super fun because mm. you're interrogating everything and it could be anything it could be anything another american musical is sort of ready now to get its first ever reading and that's super exciting we're hoping to do that in the fall so, and then uh, i'm writing a, an australian musical which is a which is my first first attempt at writing a dance musical. I've always wanted to write it. Ever since I saw Hot Shoe Shuffle, I was like, ooh, I want to write a dance musical. Brilliant. So this is a kind of a dark musical set in the mid-1950s in Australia. So I just kind of shift them around, like, okay, sort of squeaky wheel. Which one needs, do I need to look at now? There's a workshop coming up. I need songs for this I'll work on this one this week, and then I'll work on this show next week. And I just sort of move them around and depending on what one needs most love. So it's busy. And it's been gestating in the darkness, but now it feels like they're starting to come a little bit more alive, which is cool. Oh, that's so exciting. And yeah. I'm sure everyone's going to be absolutely thrilled to know that there's more Eddie Perfect creations coming well, I hope so. into the world. <laughs> Other people will be like, Ugh. <laughs> I was going to ask you actually if you have daily practices that keep you grounded and also keep you inspired. Obviously, dog walking is one. Yeah. Inspiration is a hard one. It kind of comes in fits and starts, but I think the, the, the most important thing is to, you know, if you're feeling really vibey and and I can, I'll, I'll say to Luce, I've just got these ideas, I'm just going to write them down and that's fine. And if I'm not, it's really about just sort of putting in the time anyway. Because mm. I think some of the best things I've ever written have just come out of just sitting there with not an idea in my head, you know. Yeah. And I really don't subscribe to the notion of, you know, you wait until you're inspired and then you write. I think, you, you know, you turn the tap on and then the water comes out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is there a level of discipline that you need? I mean, I'm sure there is, but it's discipline's a really interesting one because I would consider myself to be fundamentally a lazy person, but through a combination of guilt and ambition, I pick myself up and I make myself work. But I think if I didn't have something I was passionate about, mm. I would quite happily sit on the couch playing video games. And there's certainly been periods in my life where that's that's really all I've done. But then I just feel so bad about myself and I'm like, no, that's not. I really do feel like my entire purpose is to explore this art form that I've been, I feel really lucky to have found it. Like mm. I didn't go hunting to be a, a composer and a lyricist. I just fell ass backwards into it. And it was like, oh, wow. And it was late. You know, I was in my 20s and I was like, oh, wow, I really love this. I really, I really love this. And, and my love for it has kind of gone, you know, up and down. And there are certainly sort of depressing aspects to the business. But I generally feel like 
the my purpose, even though purpose is a weird thing, and I think that ultimately, ultimately, life is kind of like is meaningless, and you just kind of attach meaning to stuff. And if you're lucky mm. enough, you find something that's sort of satisfying. You attach meaning to it, and you and you do it. And it's brought me so much joy. And it's taken me into so many cool places, and it is really tough and a lot of staring into the abyss and feeling like I haven't got anything and I and, and then the feeling of finding something and working through it and coming out of the the abyss with an idea is really satisfying and that saved me from a, a life of just pure Netflix and chill I think because yeah. I have a need to do it but, but god I would I would really like to be on the couch <laughs> Yeah, so a discipline is not just that, you know, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life because mm. you can, you know, you'd be like, well, I love eating ice cream. It's like, great, well, you're you're going to be the you're going to be the national ice cream taster and I bet you bet your bottom dollar that fucking person is like, Ugh. oh, I'm going to eat ice cream again today. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's, oh, it's disgusting. There's something bad. It doesn't matter. And I say it to my kids all the time. It's iceberg stuff. The tip of the iceberg is where it's the best part of your job and it's annoyingly the part that everybody sees and it's like, wow, your job's so great. And then underneath that is just loneliness and frustration and yeah. self-doubt and all sorts of crazy things. But, you know, being able to navigate those is what makes the top so sweet. Yeah. What would you say to people who want to try this career or who have a burning passion for musicals, composing, being in this industry? My advice, I've got lots of advice, but my advice is get in the room, whatever room where it's being made, get inside mm. that room. And I think what's most important for a young person is curiosity, like go and see everything, see everything, mm. meet anyone you can meet, write Get your work out there. Do not wait for a phone to ring or for someone else to make the opportunity or for someone else to book the venue or for someone else. It's all you, you know. Mm. There's always performers and musicians and directors and designers who are sort of waiting for a good idea. You can assemble a team of people and you can put work on. And in hindsight, that's been my superpower. Like making my own work was just like basically creating – the perfect character and role for myself and casting myself and then got to show what I could do. And from there, I started getting offers to do other people's work. Mm. That would not have happened, I don't think, because I've tried auditioning for musicals. I didn't get into them. I, I can't really dance. I'm not really I'm not really uniform, unison guy, you know. Yeah. And when you're 24 and you don't fit in the ensemble – it's a long wait until you're kind of ready to do lead roles. And so I just went off and made my own work. And I think making your own work is really important, especially something like the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Mm. Like, you know, once all of the work has been done to create a show, then you've got something to perform and something to sell. And you can put something together on the smell of an oily rag. And if it's good and if people are talking about it then it can get the attention of a of a festival and it can travel yeah. to other art centers around the country and places like the Adelaide Cabaret Festival or the Powerhouse in Brisbane or QPAC or the Art Center in Melbourne or you know there are all of these places looking for content mm. i feel like you need to really be aware of what work is being made and then go out there and be audacious and bold and create something that other people aren't doing and and create take a big swing. The amount of people that are like, I'm going to make something that's exactly like I think people want to see. 
You need to you need to show some leadership in what you think people might want to see. Mm. Make, make something that's kind of courageous and bold and surprising and wild. Because at the beginning of your career, it's the time of the most freedom when you don't have anyone who's put money into the show saying, you can't do that or I don't want that or that's no good. Yeah. You know, you've got nothing to lose. So that's when you should be taking the biggest swings, not the smallest ones. Thank you, Eddie. It's been such a joy <laughs> and a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, Libby. Like a true creative, Eddie speaks from the heart and shoots from the hip. Whether you're a full-time creator or the arts is your sideline passion, it's hard to walk away from this discussion without feeling like everything is possible. And if you're anything like me, you'll be very inspired to pick up a pen and start pouring your big ideas into the blank pages of a notebook right now. It's been an honour to learn from Eddie today to hear how he zigzagged his way to some of the biggest stages in the industry and to understand just how much grit and elbow grease it took to get there. It's exciting to know that no matter how high Eddie's star has risen, it started its ascent on Aussie stages for Aussie audiences. It makes you wonder where our next homegrown creative talent will spring from. They may be walking through the halls of the Adelaide Festival Centre right now or they may be listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this audio experience, rate the podcast and share it with your friends and family so we can all enjoy the rich cultural experiences South Australia has to offer. In the meantime, if you need an entertainment fix, why not see a show? You can find out what fantastic performances are currently showing on the Adelaide Festival Centre website and social media. Search Adelaide Festival Centre or follow the links in the episode description. I'm Libby O'Donovan and you're listening to The First 50 Podcast, produced by Solstice Podcasting and the Adelaide Festival Centre.